Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. My name is Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. Hannah, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Avi? I'm good. Tony, what's up? Uh, Not too much. I'm just excited to talk about diagnostic tests for the next, I don't know, 15, 20, 60 minutes. We'll see. Which is actually what the three of us do when we sit around talking anyway. Exactly. Yeah, the pretest probability of this conversation lasting longer than we think it will. So today we're discussing a diagnostic oddity. For many pulmonary infections, we look at the urine to make a diagnosis. This is true for bacterial causes like strep pneumonia and Legionella, and also for some fungal infections like histoplasmosis. Tony, what prompted you to explore this topic? Well, it's basically the reason that you mentioned. I found it odd that we diagnose many infections in the lung uh, by looking for evidence of that infection in the urine. And you know, to some extent, I understand why we might do this because I learned early on in my training that you know, getting a, a good sputum sample is actually pretty tough. But it really didn't explain why testing the urine would help me find the diagnosis of a pneumonia. And it also didn't explain why I wasn't just testing for these infections in the blood. You know, we do blood tests every day on hospitalized patients. So there had to be something else going on. Could it just be that infections that target the lungs also target the kidneys? I mean, it, it certainly could be. And I think some of these respiratory infections do at times involve the kidneys. It's like Legionella is one example. But most don't in directly involve the kidney, don't directly infect the kidney. So the explanation can't really rely on, okay, you know, you've got pneumococcal pneumonia, but the pneumococcus is also, um, you know, in the urinary tract. So you know, there's got to be a different mechanism for what's going on. And Tony, most of these diagnostic tests are antigen tests and not cultures or PCRs. And might this be a clue to the explanation? Yeah, yeah I think it's a big clue because um, you know, the diagnostic tests we're talking about today they're not cultures, as you said. They're not direct assays of the organism. They are antigen tests. And you know, these are urine antigen tests. And you know, examples are the ones that you mentioned at the top of the show, like urine strep antigen, urine legionella antigen, urine histoantigen. And it might be valuable to provide a little bit of a history because amazingly enough, this has been known for nearly 100 years. So in 1917, Alphonse Doche and Oswald Avery they observed that a pneumococcal antigen was readily identified in the urine in patients who had like a low-bar pneumococcal pneumonia. And they noticed that this was true even if they couldn't identify that antigen in the blood. When you said the name Oswald Avery, I immediately was sort of thrown back in time to college biology, <laughs> <laughs> learning about DNA and that's it's the stuff of genes. Is that the same Oswald Avery? It's the same exact guy, though the DNA is the stuff of gene stuff didn't come for a few decades later. But it's actually a really interesting second connection from this work back in 1917. And it's the fact that the antigen they were studying was the C polysaccharide of strep pneumonia. And that C polysaccharide is what CRP reacts with, giving it its name C-reactive protein. I don't. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I always assumed that uh, CRP was like a relatively new test. Uh, but it's actually been around since the 1930s, and and the again the C polysaccharide had, has been noted since at least 1917. Either way, the studies on the antigen in pneumococcal pneumonia, the fact that it appears in the urine raises two important questions that we're going to have to address. And the first is how does the strep antigen get into the urine if, as we've talked about, pneumococcus doesn't itself directly affect the genitourinary tract? And second, if 
it does get into the urine and that route is via the blood, why aren't we just testing the blood? Why aren't these blood tests universally positive? CRP is like my new favorite molecule ever since the A-plus episode. So I'm always delighted to see a little bit of history of CRP here. Another indication not to send the testing. (laughs) Um, But so going back to your question about thinking how how do these antigens get into the urine, way back in episode three, we talked about how the kidney handles different molecules. And then we were talking about creatinine and the antibiotic, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. We highlighted glomerular filtration and then tubular reabsorption and or excretion. So what we said then, just kind of like making our schema of how stuff gets into urine, it's either got to get filtered through the glomerulus and then not get reabsorbed into the tubules to end up in the urine, or it's got to get excreted directly from the tubules into the urine. So kind of like passing by the glomerulus, but then getting excreted by the tubules. Is there one category or another that these antigen tests tend to fall into? Yeah, I think that there is. But to answer that question, it's probably going to be valuable for us to discuss something called the sieving coefficient. Is this a concept that either of you have encountered before? Avi, I've how about you? S- I've sifted flour. I, <laughs> I cannot conceive of such a thing. Of sifting flour or this or the sieving coefficient? The sieving coefficient. Okay, so you two have sifted flour, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I. Yeah. It, 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 well, I mean, I don't. I'm not a baker, so this is not something I, I do very often. <laughs> um, but apparently, my kidneys are are uh, sieving antigen molecules all the time. I had no idea that this was a concept, though. I think there we knew we know what kind of is, exists because we know about glomerular filtration. But again, I didn't, I didn't learn about this in medical school, at least as far as I remember, or residency. But the way to think about the sieving coefficient is it's a ratio, and the ratio looks at the concentration of the filtrate over the concentration in the plasma, right? So the higher the ratio, the more of that molecule is being sieved, more of it is going to be in the filtrate, okay? So this is the the sieving coefficient. So smaller molecules that are filtered really easily or sieve really easily have a higher sieving coefficient, meaning more of it, again, gets through the glomerulus. Does that, that kind of make sense? It does, but what do you mean by smaller? Are we talking sort of molecular weight or more kind of you know size, like radius? Yeah, the, the sense I get is that both play a role. Most of the literature that you'll read on this topic will reference molecular weight because I think most molecules, we have access to that data, but it's a little bit harder to get access to to radius data. So I'll mention both during this discussion and both probably do play a role. So with that, can you guys anticipate a molecule that might have a sieving coefficient of one? And that again means that the concentration in the filtrate is equal to the concentration in the plasma. So what do you think, Hannah? Can you imagine a molecule that so, might so be like that? this is like our freely filtered substance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that should be like creatinine. If we think back to episode three, it sure it sure will be. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there's tons of other ones, right? The small molecules like sodium, urea, glucose, um, they're freely filtered, and they have a sieving coefficient. That's one. And I mean, a- the a- atoms are tiny, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, if you think about the molecular weight of sodium, it's 0.02 kilodaltons, and its molecular radius is 0.1 nanometers, right? So, it, just as you said, Avi, it, they are tiny. 
Okay, so something that would then not be tiny and would have a tiny sebum coefficient would be maybe something like albumin or like a big charged gnarly protein. That, that's exactly right. So normally, the sebum coefficient for albumin is less than 0.01. And this is partly a reflection of the size of the molecule, right? So albumin is 69 kilodaltons and 3.55 nanometers. So albumin is more than 3,000 times as heavy as sodium and has a radius 35 times as wide. Now, I think we all know uh, and we certainly all learned that uh, charge plays a role for some of these molecules and albumin does have a negative charge. And so do the endothelial cells of the glomerular uh, basement membrane. So this makes it even harder for albumin to get across, and it probably plays some role in the sebum coefficient. But remember that there are tons of negatively charged molecules um, that have a sebum coefficient of one. Like chloride? Yeah. So, so chloride would be a, a perfect example. So it's, you know, it, the size probably matters a lot more than the charge at these extremes, right? It's, you know, chloride is a tiny, tiny molecule, as you said Obviously, it's an atom. So its molecular weight and radius is going to be more important than its charge. Okay, so, so I think we've established some of these tenets of sieving coefficient and the idea that it's partly related to the size of the molecule. Now, in order for us to establish that the antigens used to diagnose things like Legionella and Strep are filtered, it'll probably help to know their sieving coefficient. I looked as hard as I could to find that data, and I wasn't able to find it, but I was able to find the molecular weight of C polysaccharide, and that's 22 kilodaltons. And again, remember, the C polysaccharide is the antigen in strep pneumonia that we're testing for. So at 22 kilodaltons, you said albumin was 69 kilodaltons. So we're talking uh, less than half the weight of albumin, right? That, that's right. So C polysaccharide is quite a bit smaller than albumin. And I, I think a decent comparator is myoglobin, which has a molecular weight of 17 kilodaltons. And, and we do know the sieving coefficient of myoglobin. It's 0.75. So you know, this is actually one of the key reasons why rhabdo can lead to tubular injury. Right? Myoglobin is able to cross the glomerulus and have access to the tubules where it can become a toxin. Right? It's not freely filtered. Right? It doesn't have a sieving coefficient of 1%. But it's got a high enough sieving coefficient that at 0.75, basically 75% of it is filtered, can access the, the tubules and cause damage. So like you were saying, C polysaccharide, it's relatively small. It makes sense that it would make its way into the urine. But if we're able to detect it in a, with an assay you know, outside the body, it must also not be reabsorbed back, right? That's exactly right. And Because you got to notice that the sieving coefficient is not the same thing as fractional excretion. Right. Simply because a molecule is freely filtered doesn't mean it's going to make its way all the way into the urine. And sodium and chloride provide another set of good examples here because their fractional excretion is certainly not 100%. In fact, it's usually less than 1%. The thing is, I couldn't find great data for you know reabsorption and excretion, but the best I could tell for these antigens, once they're filtered, not much else happens. And so you might think about them as having a fractional excretion of 100%. Now, again, I wasn't able to confirm this, so, so there may be some listener who knows that they're handled some way in the tubule, but there's a, certainly a decent fraction of it that ends up in the urine because we're testing for it. Like, we, 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 we know that we're testing for it. Okay, so in order to get into the urine, something has to be at least somewhat freely filtered, or these molecules are freely filtered, and then they actually stay in the urine. They're not being reabsorbed. 
So this C-reacted peptide, the C-polysaccharide. That's right. Is getting filtered into the urine and then it's just staying in there. And that's how we know we can measure it. So how does, I guess kind of like that brings us two questions. The first is how does the antigen get into the urine if the pneumococcus is not in the urinary system? And presumably that's via the blood. But then why don't we just measure it in the blood? That's right. So it does, clearly the source of urine is blood that's filtered. And so these antigens are appearing in the blood and they are able to appear in the urine because they have you know, a high enough sieving coefficient. But this is an important question because you know anyone who has ordered a urine test knows that while there's a lot of benefits to getting a urine as opposed to a blood test, that one of the biggest ones being you don't have to do a needle stick to do a urine test, sometimes they're kind of hard to obtain in, in many ways. I find that sometimes the, my urine tests, I'm waiting like two or three days for it because we we're having a hard time getting a sample. So to kind of answer this question of like why we're not seeing it in, in as much in the blood as the urine, it's probably helpful to compare this C-polysaccharide to another carbohydrate, something that, again, most of our listeners have heard of, and that's inulin. Now, like C-polysaccharide, it's pretty small at five kilodaltons. It's even smaller than C-polysaccharide. And if we assume they're handled similarly by the kidneys, then I think looking at the relative plasma and urine concentrations of inulin might provide a clue to the relative concentrations of C-polysaccharide. And so the urine concentration of inulin is 440 milligrams per liter, and in the plasma, it's 10 milligrams per liter. So SIADH is on. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, just kidding. Um, great. Okay. So, so what I'm what I'm interpreting from this though is that the urine is concentrated, <laughs> um, and that the urine concentration of inulin is 44 times more than what is seen as in the plasma. Right. So if you got uh, samples in the urine and the blood at the same time. Just as you said, the concentration in the urine of this of this small molecule that's, that's freely filtered is going to be 44 times that of what, what's found in the blood. And so you might assume that other small molecules like this C-polysaccharide have similar relative concentrations. And the result of that is you could imagine a positive urine test and a negative blood test. And there are a number of reasons why the blood test might be lower and for the kinds of molecules we were talking about on this uh, on this episode, the reasons include things like low antigen production, binding of the antigens by serum antibodies, sequestration into the reticular endothelial system, and antigen metabolism. But whatever the reason, it certainly appears that the concentration of these antigens in the urine it far exceed what we're able to find in the blood, which is frankly why we're testing for them in the blood. And there are obviously a lot of other reasons why we you know, prefer antigen te testing the urine as opposed to the blood. I mentioned needle sticks. But there are some other things. You can actually get a pretty large sample if you're able to obtain it. And in some situations, you, I think labs will even concentrate the urine to make it even more likely they're going to find the, the positive test. You know, it's interesting. What's coming to mind for me too, Tony, is thinking about something like histoplasmosis where we sort of have clinically available to us both urine and blood tests, and we can sort of choose between the two of them. And at least in my own sort of, I, I recall reading somewhere that like the urine is more sensitive than the blood when testing for histoplasmosis, and that would sort of make sense based on what you're you're saying and teaching us now, right? Yeah, that's right. And I found quite similar data for histo, and as you said. It you can do a blood test, you can do a urine test, 
And pretty consistently in the, in the, the studies that looked at the concentrations of these antigens are higher in the urine than in the blood. And that's kind of consistent with what we've talked about for some of these other molecules that uh, end up being filtered by the kidney. Did you come across anything in terms of sort of specificity of the two assays? Uh, this, the sensitivity and specificity for, for many of these are cited in a range of like 80 to 90. So they're not 100% specific. And certainly for the fungal antigens, the, I think the specificity goes down. Often there's a lot of cross-reactivity for these endemic mycoses. But I don't, I don't, so I don't think any of them are like 100% specific. I'm not sure if you've seen data on this. No, I, I haven't. But are there any other infections that spill antigens into the urine? It, it, it's actually kind of amazing how many there are. So we've talked about Legionella and Histo and Pneumococcus, but the list goes on. So I'll, I'll just mention a few just to give you a sense of the breadth of this. So there's Leishmaniasis, Malaria, Tuberculosis, Leprosy, Chagas disease, Endemic Mycoses, Beyond Histo. It just, like I said, it goes on and on and on. Because a lot of these antigens are that these infections produce are small enough that they're filtered uh, by the glomerulus and we're able to to find them in the urine. That is so fascinating. And I like, I find that these test characteristics are so interesting and then end up being so relevant to you four days into a hospitalization. <laughs> exactly. As you sort of like try and interpret uh, what the most useful piece of data is. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I think there's one other important piece of information, particularly as we think about these as diagnostic tests. So, as we've talked about this over the last you know, 20 minutes, I think we've kind of assumed that what we're finding in the urine is, is actually exactly the same as what we've, we're maybe looking for in the blood. And there's actually some data suggesting that the urine antigens are actually degradation products. And you know, presumably because of the slow breakdown of polysaccharides and mammalian tissues and the large load of antigens deposited during an infection, in, in, in the case of a pneumococcal pneumonia, it could be several grams, the urinary excretion of these polysaccharide antigens, it actually can persist for days or even weeks. So there's a case report of uh, a urine legionella antigen persisting for 326 days after an infection. And if you actually go back to the Doshea and Oswald, uh, their original paper from 1917, they reported three patients in whom they were able to recover the pneumococcal antigen at 40, 42, and 58 days after the onset of illness. So these antigens continue to be filtered in many times long after the infections have cleared. That's so interesting. Because I feel like I, I have seen that happen where the test gets ordered and then it comes back and then it's positive, like for say for pneumococcus, but they don't have pneumonia. And you're sort of like, well, they might, I guess, because they tested positive. But like you were saying, maybe months ago or weeks or months ago, they, they had an infection and they don't anymore. I think that's very, very enlightening. And I think it gets to one of the reasons why these tests are not 100% specific. They are you know, have a pretty good specificity for the disease. They certainly don't have a 100% specificity for the disease being active at this exact moment. I mean, again, in this case of the Legionella patient, 326 days after the infection, they were still spilling that antigen into the urine. Yeah, it's sort of like the original IgG. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible, honestly. All right, Tony, do you have take-home points for us? Sure. Uh, so the first is that um, many urinary antigens are small. Um, and so that means they have high sieving coefficients and can be accessed in the urine. And because they have high concentrations in the urine, you can use them as diagnostic tests. And remember, this is even when the organisms themselves uh, are not affecting the kidney or the ureter or the bladder. 
And all this is happening, and we're able to access these these tests in the urine, despite, at times, the serum concentrations being quite low. Thanks so much, Tony. Super interesting. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Curious Clinicians.